the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Inauguration Day here on the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice. He's given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Well, today, President Trump, on this 20th day of January 2021, he left Washington for Florida, and that was hours before President-elect Joe Biden was sworn in. The president and First Lady Melania Trump exited the White House at approximately 8 a.m. They were headed to Trump's Mar-a-Lago Resort in Palm Beach. Well, during a stop at Joint Base Andrews in Maryland, where Trump transferred from Marine One to Air Force One, the president told a crowd of supporters, we love you. We will be back in some form, which raised a lot of questions among his hearers and observers. Well, the president will be the first sitting president since Andrew Johnson uh, to skip all inaugural ceremonies for his successor. President Woodrow Wilson, he skipped the public ceremony for his successor, but he did accompany his successor, Warren Harding, to the Capitol. So there's nothing new, apparently, under the sun. Well, Biden's pared down inauguration is going to and did feature fewer guests. It was, uh, was of course, due to COVID-19. So the expectations uh, were adjusted to the times that we're in. Well, Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th president of the United States today, bringing Donald Trump's term to a close. Now, Chief Justice um, John Roberts, he performed the swearing in ceremony. Justice Sonia Sotomayor conducted Kamala Harris uh, as a uh, vi- as a uh, vice president. And Trump didn't attend the inauguration at all, so he wasn't a part of that equation. He flew, as I mentioned, to Florida. The inauguration took place on the steps of the Capitol, where two weeks previously, a mob incited by uh, words by Donald Trump, it's being insisted force lawmakers to briefly evacuate the building. Dozens of police officers were injured in the rioting, including Brian Sicknick, who later died. Another Capitol officer, Eugene Goodman, was honored at the inauguration after video appeared in which he used himself as a decoy to draw rioters away from the open door to the Senate chamber. Well, Biden said in his speech at the ceremony that we've learned again that democracy is precious, it's fragile, and at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. Now, I'm hoping, if not later this week, next week, we're going to address this reference to the United States um, of America, the Republic Um, as a democracy, which the founders, of course, did not support. But Biden also planned uh, to issue a blitz of 17 executive orders that was immediately following the inauguration. We'll uh, try to tell you what some of those were earlier in the day. And the orders included a mask mandate on federal property, a halt to construction of the wall on the U.S.-Mexico border, although there will not be any demolition of the existing wall, and the rescinding of immigration and travel restrictions from several Muslim-majority countries. Now, you might recall the reason those countries were put on that list was the leadership in those countries were unwilling to participate and cooperate with the United States requirements for clearing its residents. So that will be reversed, among other things. And again, we'll talk about that a bit later as well. Well, Biden, at 78, became the oldest president in American history. 
President Donald Trump previously held that record as the oldest. But at Biden at 78, I think um, President Trump at 74 became the oldest president in the nation's history when he was sworn in as commander in chief earlier in the day. Well, prior to Trump's inauguration, former President uh, Ronald Reagan, who left the White House in 1989, he was 77 and 349 days years old, I should say. (laughs) Um, He was the oldest person to serve as president. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris at 56 is more than 20 years younger than the president. It really is a testament to the resiliency and the physical and mental strength uh, in the 21st century that someone of the advanced ages of some of the men that I've mentioned who've served as president have been able to do so. There were questions raised during the campaign as to whether or not Joe Biden would have the stamina and the mental capacity to lead. That will all be played out over the next um, four years. Well, Kamala Harris, she cemented her place in history today. She became the first woman and the first woman of color, uh, the first woman of color, not the first individual of color, to be sworn in as vice president of the United States. As I mentioned, she's 56. She's the daughter of immigrants from India and Jamaica, She brings with her a litany of firsts. She's the first woman vice president, the first black vice president, the first South Asian vice president. She was sworn in by Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Another history, uh, historic female first is the first um, Supreme Court justice of Latin descent. I'm here today because of the women who came before me, the former California senator tweeted on Wednesday before the inauguration. She chose to be sworn in using two Bibles, one previously belonging to Regina Shelton, whom she says, uh, I should say, described as a mother-like figure to herself and her sister Maya, and the second belonging to the late civil rights icon and Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, whom Harris had previously credited with inspiring her career. She was a former San Francisco district attorney. She rose to national prominence when she was elected as the first black woman to serve as California's attorney general in 2010. She held that position until 2016 when she was elected to the Senate. She is one of only two black women to have served as U.S. senator. She attended uh, Howard University, historically black university in Washington, D.C., where she joined Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, the first historically black sorority. So lots of firsts for uh, for her today. Well, as I mentioned, the uh, the president is seeking to reverse several Trump policies in the first days in office. He spoke during his inauguration speech a great deal about unity and some question whether or not his first 17 executive actions, if that reflects a desire for unity and whether or not he'll weigh in on the impeachment trial in the Senate, should there be one. And there are some constitutional questions as to whether or not that's even possible Uh, If this reflects the agenda that the president referenced during his um, inauguration address, well, he wants to reverse several of Trump's policies in the first days in office. Uh, The special restore uh, report all star panel uh, made reference to each of these. And uh, among them are the uh, is the executive desire to end the wall. Biden is going to declare an immediate termination of funding for the border wall construction, putting an end to a key Trump campaign and administration uh, promise to build a wall, which we all followed with um, great interest and very closely. He's also going to sign an executive order revoking Trump's previous order that directed aggressive immigration enforcement. The team said that the uh, the move will allow for the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies to set civil immigration enforcement policies that best protect the American people and that are in line with our value and priorities. Meanwhile, a rather large 
um, caravan is making its way to the United States in response to statements made by uh, the president. And we'll see how that plays out over the next few weeks and months. The Biden administration is going to have a very different approach to regional migration. That's a quote from Jake Sullivan, incoming White House national security advisor. He added that Biden was committed to rebuilding the nation's asylum system. Well, Biden is also, um, he signed uh, Preserve and Fortify. It's the Obama-era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program, that allows people who came to the United States as children to request deferred immigration enforcement and work authorization for a renewal period of two years. Well, the Trump administration had sought to end that program since September of 2017, mounting a number of federal legal battles unsuccessfully. Well, next, he set to um, and did, I should say, the president signed an executive order that will put an end to Trump's Muslim ban, which Sullivan said was rooted in religious animus and xenophobia. Well, actually, it was rooted in an unwillingness on the part of Sudan, Syria, Libya, Somalia, Yemen and Iran to work within the system the United States uh, had developed to help to hold individuals attempting to enter the country with some accountability. Well, Trump in 2017 signed that executive order suspending entry into the U.S. Uh, US rather for individuals from these mostly Muslim but not exclusively Muslim countries. The travel ban was updated later in the year to include North Korea and Venezuela. The Trump administration expanded the ban again in January of 2020 to include an additional six countries, again, based on their level of cooperation or refusal to do just that. The administration's reversal will uh, repeal Trump's order to instruct the State Department to restart visa processing for affected countries in an effort to restore fairness and remedy the harms caused by the ban, end quote. Well, Sullivan also said Biden's actions would strengthen screening and vetting for travelers by enhanced information sharing with foreign governments, while also directing a a further review of other Trump administration extreme vetting practices. Now, whether or not that will provide sufficient national security um, will remain a question to be followed. Well, as for the census, Biden is going to sign and did sign an executive order today to revoke the Trump administration's plan to exclude non-citizens from the census and apportionment of congressional representatives. Uh, The move will ensure the Census Bureau has time to complete an accurate population count for each state, which uh, he will uh, then present to Congress. We'll tell you more of what's on the the lineup for for President Trump. Excuse me, I have to get used to all of this for President Biden. When we come back from the break, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, today was certainly a momentous occasion in which the um, country had its uh, inauguration of the next president of the United States, Joe Biden. However you cast your ballot, whatever you thought of the outcome, Joe Biden is now president of the United States. And he chose among his first actions as president of the United States to sign 17 executive actions and orders to reverse Trump policies, making his mark early on. Well, continuing to take a look at some of the uh, the action items, he is taking action on uh, re-engaging with the World Health Organization after the Trump administration withdrew in 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic and misinformation there. The Biden administration is going to work with the World Health Organization. And you might recall Trump withdrew funding as well. And our partners, uh, the uh, Biden administration is saying to strengthen and reform the organization, support the COVID-19 health and humanitarian response, and advance global health and security. The team, uh, the Biden team, said Dr. Anthony Fauci would lead the Biden administration's 
Biden's delegation at the WHO executive board meeting this week. So apparently his credibility has been restored. And the president is expected to restore the White House's National Security Council's pandemic unit, which Trump disbanded early in his administration. Well, meanwhile, the United States is headed back to Paris. Biden will sign the instrument to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord after the Trump administration officially left that agreement last year. The agreement was a global pact creating, uh, created rather during the Obama administration to combat climate change. Biden's national climate advisor, Gina McCarthy, said the move will be an important step for the U.S. to regain and strengthen its leadership opportunities. Under the previous administration, there were not sufficient benefits to the United States and uh, excessive deficits. It was not in the U.S. best interest, but we have a new administration. Next, Biden uh, signed an executive order that will roll back Trump's environmental actions, including the revocation of Trump presidential proclamations and other actions signed that uh, McCarthy claims don't serve the United States national interest. The move is also uh, uh, going to revoke the presidential permit granted by the uh, Keystone XL pipeline, a promise made by Biden during the campaign, McCarthy said. And of course, that has Canada scrambling. Their expectations have now just been dramatically altered. He's going to sign a broad executive order that takes steps that will uh, uh, be imperative to address our climate uh, crisis, she says, with the, uh, which will create good union jobs and advance environmental justice. With regard to the coronavirus pandemic, uh, the president on Wednesday will launch the 100-day masking challenge and sign an executive order requiring masks and physical distancing in all federal buildings, on all federal land, and by federal employees and contractors. Uh, the president also extended the eviction and foreclosure moratoriums for those affected by the unprecedented housing affordability crisis. Sadly, that does not uh, extend to those um, who own those properties, many of whom are struggling as well. The director of the National Economic Council, Brian D., said the emergency measures are important. Uh, Biden is also expected to ask the Department of Education to consider immediately extending the pause on interest and principal payments of the federal student loans until the 30th of September. Deese added that Biden supports Congress acting immediately to cancel $10,000 rather in student loan debt per person. Uh, these are emergency measures that will help make sure no American is put in the place to make the decision to pay their student loans or put food on the table. Meanwhile, uh, White House domestic policy advisor Susan Rice said that Biden on Wednesday will put racial justice and equality at the center of the agenda and will build a whole um, a whole of government approach to racial justice. Not altogether clear what that will look like at this point. Biden will sign an executive order to define equality or rather equity as the consistent and systematic, fair, just and impartial treatment of all individuals, including those who belong to underserved communities such as black, Latino, indigenous and Native American persons, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders and other persons of color, LGBTQ plus persons, people with disabilities, religious minorities, persons who live in rural areas and persons otherwise affected by persistent poverty and inequality, end quote. Rice said Biden will direct federal agencies to review the state of equity within their agencies, work with the Office of Management and Budget to equitably allocate federal resources. Well, the president also signed an executive order that prohibits against uh, workplace discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity and is directing agencies to take all lawful steps to make sure that federal anti-discrimination statutes prohibit discrimination on the basis 
of sexual orientation, gender identity, and protecting the rights of LGBTQ plus individuals. Other actions the president took today include signing a memo to extend the deferred enforcement departure, rather department, uh, designation for other actions that the president's uh, taking on Wednesday include signing a memo to extend the deferred enforcement departure designation uh, for Liberians who have been in the U.S. for many years to June of 2022. Biden will also sign an executive order or to restore and maintain public trust and government and order every appointee in the executive branch um, to sign a broad executive order that takes steps that are imperative to address our crisis of trust all across the board. This is, a, again, a not altogether unusual step, but is designed to at least give the appearance of holding individuals who hold office and positions of authority to a higher standard. It's essentially an ethics pledge, which will ensure that employees act in the interest of the American people and not for personal gain. Now, these ethics pledges are only useful, however, if they're enforced, and that will be the challenge for the administration. The president also issued a memo Wednesday withdrawing the Trump administration's regulatory process in an effort to remove those needless obstacles to regulating in the public's interest. And incoming White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain who also issued a regulatory freeze memo on Wednesday, will pause any new regulations from moving forward and give Biden, uh, the president and the administration, a chance to review any regulations that the Trump administration tried to finalize in its last days. Uh, Jen Psaki said that uh, in the, uh, the coming days and weeks, Biden will be announcing additional executive actions that confront these challenges and deliver on the president-elect's, uh, well, now president's promises to the American people. The Mexico City policy that forbids the use of taxpayer dollars to fund abortions in foreign countries is certainly on that list. Taxpayer funding of abortion is very likely in our future. Well, there's so much more that could be said about all of this, but I did want to just mention Uh, One other thing before uh, this segment draws to a close. We've now seen the 46th president of the United States inaugurated. What do we do as followers? Some of us supported uh, Joe Biden, hoping that he would turn the country around. Some of us did not support Joe Biden, convinced that the the, uh, country is going to decline in ways that cannot be restored. So what is the appropriate response from a biblical perspective at a time of great um, challenge. Well, I appreciated what Anne Graham Lotz suggested that we do. She offered a prayer for our nation. She said this, on this day, January 20th, 2021, we acknowledge that yours, referring not to Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any elected or political figure, but to the God of the universe, that yours is the glory and the power. Did that change today at around, what was it, noon, when the oath of office was taken? Did God, did his position shift in some way? Did his power diminish? Is his glory somehow um, altered by the events that took place in Washington earlier today? She goes on to say, there are times in prayer when I seem at a loss for words. This is one of those times. With all of the turmoil, confusion, anger, fear, division, and upheaval, as we transition to a new administration with COVID keeping us confined and separated from each other, I I know I need to pray, but how? And so I have turned to the familiar prayers that Jesus taught us to pray, putting it into her own words, our Father. 
you are seated on heaven's throne in glory, majesty, and supreme authority. You are in charge. You don't make mistakes. You have promised that you will be with us even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You use hard times to get us to look up. So we look up now. We turn to you. Thank you for your promise that when we come to to you through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, you will hear our prayer because we are your children. We reverence your name, Yahweh, Yeshua, Jesus. You have declared that at the sound of your name, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are the Lord. You have revealed that your name is above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. You have been our help in ages past. You are our hope for years to come. You are the God of our founding fathers. You are our God in whom we as a nation have put our trust. Now, this is a partial prayer, but it is one that puts into eternal perspective the challenges we face today as a nation seriously fractured and divided. And the choice is that not just one political party or the other, one denomination or the other, one end of the political continuum or the other has to uh, has to face. But it's the challenge that each of us as individuals must confront. How will I respond to our current situation? Will I gloat if my side won? How will I respond? If my side lost, will I declare that all is lost or will I look up? Will I look to him and find my hope? We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the country is still recovering and rebuilding after two historic hurricanes, shootings in Las Vegas and at a church in Texas. One of the main sources of cleanup efforts and humanitarian aid after the hurricanes has been through Christian charities and relief workers, more so than even the U.S. government. And it's faith that's getting the community and surviving members of the shooting at First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, through that tragedy. Would we be able to recover from these disasters were it not for faith and charity? Well, in his new book, Unimaginable, What Our World Would would Be Like Without Christianity, Jeremiah Johnston, Dr. Johnston, uh, takes on the prevalent theory that's held by many atheists that the world without Christianity would have been a better one. He recognizes a societal shift, a movement toward minimizing Christian influence and reminds readers that you might get what you want but you might not want what you get. Unimaginable offers an inspiring look at the positive influence of Christianity, both historically and uh, today. And he covers the far-reaching way that Christianity is good for the world and has been since uh, the first century A.D. Well, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston is a New Testament scholar and frequent contributor to national publications and uh, uh, programs, including USA Today, Fox News, CNN, uh, Relevant, and many others. Known for his uh, communication skills and uh, love for people, he ministers internationally in partnership with the Museum of the Bible and is president of the Christian Thinkers Society, a resident institute at Houston Bible, uh, rather Houston Baptist University, where he serves as associate professor of early Christianity. He is the author of Un, uh, Unanswered, Lasting Truth for Trending Questions. He and his family live in Houston. Today he joins us by phone to talk about his latest book, Unimaginable, What Our World Would Be Like Without Christianity. Now, as a follower of Christ, it's unconscionable that, one, uh, that the world would exist without Christianity, but I think this is an exercise that we would do well to undertake. Welcome and thank you for, uh, for your work. 
Georgine, it's great to be back on your show. Hope you are doing great. And uh, hello to everyone in the PDX. Well, thank you. Well, let's begin by the way the book is structured. You start by focusing our attention, uh, looking backward toward a world before Christianity. And there's some important uh, things that we can consider before we look at the second part of your book, which is the world without Christianity, and the third section, which is the world with Christianity. Why do you think it's important to put this uh, this question in its larger context? context to really appreciate what the world would be like without Christianity. Well, that's a great way to start, Georgine. Context is always important. You know, it's not easy. It's not hard to do heresy. I mean, all we need is Jesus and no context or the Bible and no context. (laughs) And I really have to thank my wife, Audrey, because uh, she reads everything that I write. And she, you know, I, I wrote this book for people like her. I mean, she herself has a master's degree, but she's a busy mom. Georgine, we have five kids, including triplet babies, if you can imagine. <laughs> so she does not have much disposable time. Um, but I wanted people to know this question can indeed be answered. And there is a systematic way to answer this question, because you're exactly right what you said in the intro. There are voices that are not only influential, they are gaining traction, that the world would be a far better place without Christianity, that the, a secular world would be be much, much more progressive, much more innovative. And, you know, if we can just shake off religion, but especially these Christians, the world would be so much better. And this is very prevalent, not just on the university scene, but in media and pop culture. I mean, there's a, there's a new study I'm actually looking at right now, Georgine, that claims there will be no Christians left in the United Kingdom by 2067, mm-hmm. our lifetime. And so as Christians, we need to be able to speak to that. And so I want to guide the reader by the hand. We don't actually need to imagine it. We can look at the evidence of what happens when Christianity is sidelined. And the first way we do that is we appreciate the dramatic impact that Jesus Christ made on the world in which he lived. After all, there was a historical Jesus. There's great evidence for the historical Jesus. But what was that world like? And so in part one of the book, I look at the world before Christianity, and guess what? It was not a pretty place. Poverty, slavery, prostitution, the abuse of women and children, these things were commonplace. It was a world of suffering. It was a world of fear. Racism and gross inequities were widespread, and human life was cheap. But guess what? It was a world, you know, the, the Galatians 4 says that Jesus Christ came at, in the fullness of time. It was a world that was waiting for a new message. And I don't think we can really, truly appreciate historically the impact that Jesus Christ made until we see how fragmented, um, how difficult the world was in the first century. One of the, thing, one of the questions that you reference is one that's been asked by anthropologists and historians uh, for a very long period, and that is which gave rise to the other, civilization giving birth to religion or the other way around? How important is that question to understanding the, the, the uh, impact that Christianity has had um, on history and culture? Well, this is a great question that I think we need to ponder, and we can actually see from the earliest evidence that religion is not some kind of silly byproduct of a primitive society. Rather, religion gave birth to civilization and actually brought people together. And this is what I want people to understand, and this is why Christians need to be able to answer this question. Too many Christians are on the retreat, Georgie, and that's why I really appreciate you doing a program like this. We need Christians who are doing Jude 3, which says that we're to continue to contend for the faith. And we can't contend for the faith if we cannot answer the questions of our day. We have to really help people understand 
that when we sideline God, when we say, you know what, the church, that's old-fashioned, we don't need that, it becomes law of the jungle. There's no moral basis, it's relativism, those things reign. And so I think it's important that we appreciate that. Do you think the the fact that the, the atheists cry that the world would be better off without religion rings true because people don't understand history, they have no understanding of or appreciation of history, or they have no understanding of or appreciation of Scripture, or perhaps both? Well, I think it's both. I actually, and first I want to speak to my brothers and sisters in Christ. When I think about the church today, I think of that passage in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. It says, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord mm. or the work which he had done for Israel. This is the generation after the Joshua generation, Georgine. And I feel like I want to wake the church up, and it's never been a more exciting time to be a follower of Jesus. We are living truly in the golden age of Christianity. 70,000 people a day are coming to faith in Jesus Christ right now, but guess what? It's majority in non-Western countries. The church in the United States is winded, anemic, out of shape, because so many of us are biblically illiterate, and we, we don't appreciate the impact. And so, Unimaginable, my book explores what the world would be like had Christianity not emerged, but also serves as a warning of what will happen if Christianity indeed collapses. And so, uh, we can answer that question. And I think, too, what you talk about not knowing history— not only do we not think biblically, we don't think historically anymore. We might know mm-hmm. a little bit of historical knowledge here or there, enough to be dangerous. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a very good point. Uh, you know, in an era when binge-watching is encouraged, where every device uh, that you have can stream movies and television, it is a real challenge to be intentional about being literate in God's Word, spending time there, uh, knowing what's there, and understanding the context in which we are called to to live out our faith in the 21st century. This is a challenge that we need to take more seriously. Without a doubt. I mean, when you think, too, I read a study two days ago, I was doing a training with some educators here in Houston um, of secular CEOs. They read 60 books a year. And I mean, we're talking about secular CEOs who are on the rise right now. And as Christians, we're commanded to love God with all our mind, not just our emotions, not just our strength, but with our mind. And when we love God with our mind, it's amazing because the more we know about our faith, the more comfortable we are to have those faith conversations with people who may not believe. We're talking about the book titled Unimaginable, What Our World Would Be Like Without Christianity. Dr. Jeremiah Johnston is my guest. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a moment. By the way, the book is uh, published by Bethany House. I would highly recommend you pick it up because it helps us to better understand the value of what we bring to the world. Um, in addition to bringing the gospel, the value that the body of Christ has brought historically and we bring uh, contemporarily. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back, and today we're contemplating the unimaginable. My guest is Dr. Jeremiah Johnston. The book is titled Unimaginable. Let me say that right. (laughs) Unimaginable, what the world would be like without Christianity. And it's a a great uh, way for us to think about uh, the value that uh, Christianity and the call on our lives brings to the world that we live in. I mentioned the first two parts of the book deal with the world before Christianity, the world without Christianity, but perhaps the most important part of the book is the third part, the world with Christianity. Now, some would argue that the very um, ills that you mentioned earlier, slavery and oppression and racism, uh, is in fact a product of the oversight of uh, or the undersight of religion and that they that religion has in fact 
contributed to all of that. Let's talk about the world with Christianity and uh, how it has been a force for good in the world. Oh, that's a great way to start. 7,487 promises in God's Word from from God to us. I think that I should repeat that. There are 7,487 promises from God's Word to us. And what's remarkable about that is many of those promises talk about the Messiah, Jesus, being a blessing when He comes to the entire world, not just a select esoteric few, but to everybody. Mm -hmm. And we have indeed seen that play out. In part three of my book, Georgine, I actually give 12 ways in which the world would radically change tomorrow if the church vanished. And I can just share a few of those examples with you. And this is where believers should be so encouraged. For example, there are 46,000 organizations right now in the United States that are dedicated to feed the hungry and the homeless. Guess what? Over 60% of those 46,000 agencies are Christian organizations, Christian 501c3s, who do not have any government funding, who use their resources to feed the homeless and the hurting. In short, if the church vanished tomorrow, America would starve. There are 353,000 pastors in the United States. Something else that I think is remarkable about that statistic is 90 million Americans live in federally recognized shortage areas for a mental health professional. That means almost one in three Americans live too far away from someone that can provide uh, assistance to them if they're having anxiety, depression, or need a qualified counselor. What fills the void? Those 300,000 plus pastors who donate up, up to 200 million hours a year at little to no charge, helping people get through, manage, and get through depression and anxiety and any associated mental illnesses. When we look at also historically, I mean, you were bringing up slavery. The, the Christian church is the only belief system that has stood against slavery, and guess what? It stood against slavery more than once. Slavery ended with the, with the inception of the church. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 3.28, there is therefore neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. There's neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And we don't realize how impactful, because of our historical distance, I mean, 40% of the Roman Empire were slaves. We don't realize how how bold that statement was when Paul made it. And yet we see that Christians took that as a call to arms and they ended slavery. And again, I want to say this, that for a thousand years, not a single thinker because of the influence of the church takes up racist ideology or racist ideas. It's only then in the so-called age of enlightenment or the age of reason where we see these enlightenment thinkers, Georgine, who reject God They support transatlantic slavery because they believe in eugenics. They believe that certain races are more superior to others. What group stood against them? Believers in Jesus Christ. This is all historical, and I've got it right there in the book for people to be encouraged by. Mm. Uh, One of the things that you write about, and I'm I'm sort of going back and forth here, is is, uh, that Nazi Germany, the communist uh, Soviet Union, um, all have atheist links um, that are not generally acknowledged in contrasting the role that Christianity has played in culture in the world historically and and at present, and the absence of uh, Christianity in these these systems that reflect an atheist worldview and the, the outworking of that worldview. Absolutely. I mean, what, what do you prefer for our, ask our audience? I mean, do you want a world in which human life is sacred or a world in which humans are viewed as two-legged animals? I mean, Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, the founder of existentialism, 
he did not think that all humans had the right to live. He believed that the human herd needed to be cold. I mean, do we really want to live in a world like that? And of course, communism is officially atheist, and communists certainly do not believe that humans are made in the image of God. Communism to date is responsible. I mean, what's the body count? A hundred million dead or, or plus that? Um, what's so great about atheism? And I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that atheists can't be good people. I'm not saying, I mean, there are a lot of atheists I know. I'd be, I'd be very pleased for them to be my next door neighbors. And yet atheists and I know many atheists who recoil at the harm that's done in the name of atheism, but I don't believe they've really worked out the end result and the impact of an atheistic worldview, because when I sideline and marginalize Christianity, it becomes law of the jungle, survival of the fittest. And, you know, as the Christian heritage and worldview recedes in the West, are things getting better? And I can say they're not. You know, the idea of human rights, Georgine, is not part of an atheist, atheistic country's reality or philosophy. Uh, you know, it's fascinating when I think that 68 years ago, more than one half of the world's population was in a communist, was under communist mm -hmm. control. And what's happened to those countries? They have seen incredible revivals <laughs> leaving those systems. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the legacy, the scales of truth tip in our favor. For your readers, um, those who are believers and would embrace the Christian worldview and those who do not, what do you hope the response will be? Certainly for a believer, this is encouraging and I would think inspiring to perhaps move um, more boldly into the future. But what do you hope ultimately uh, an understanding of Christianity's impact on the world will have on those who are considering whether or not it brings value or um, brings more trouble? That's a great question. I think that my, my goal for those that have no faith or little faith or marginalized faith, I want them to appreciate that the world would be utterly different if Jesus Christ and his movement had never come to the world. And it would be a very dark place. It would be a fragmented place. The world and all the amenities and the freedoms that we know, we would not have those without the Judeo-Christian motif that we get right out of the Word of God. So if I'm an atheist, if I'm a person of no faith, I'm going to read this book and I'm going to be convinced that, oh my gosh, the world would be a much darker place without Christianity. But for the believers in Jesus Christ, it's not all about facts and figures and knowledge. Mm -hmm. Every one of us have unimaginable experiences in our own life. And in part three of the book that you so wonderfully referenced, I give story after story that I've personally experienced on the road in my ministry uh, experience of people who had utterly unimaginable experiences, but they allowed Jesus Christ to be the X factor in that experience, and it was a game changer. And I want to encourage people who are listening right now, who are struggling, who have had, I mean, unthinkable, unimaginable things happen to them. Allow Jesus Christ to come into that situation. He can bring the hope, the healing, the restoration, the forgiveness, and that no one else and nothing else can. Yeah. Well, you've experienced it. I've experienced it. So many of our listeners and others who perhaps are contemplating what that might be like through a relationship with Christ. And I think um, your work certainly draws our attention, not just to uh, the, the history of Christianity's impact on the world, but to the one who authored uh, that history. Let me ask you, um, before our conversation comes to a close, to, to tell us a little bit about the organization you are president of, and that's the Christian Thinkers Society. I, I love the sound of that. What do you all do? <laughs> Well, thank you so much. My wife and I started our ministry nine years ago, and I never went to Oxford, Georgia, to just go in the ivory tower and fall asleep in a library somewhere. I wanted to have all of the ed educational credentials uh, that skeptics have, but be iron-fisted for Jesus Christ. And I had a very clear calling that I wanted to equip myself so I could equip others. And so 
the mission of our ministry, Christian Thinker Society, is to equip and inspire Christians and pastors to be thinkers and thinkers to be Christian. You know, Jesus asks over a hundred or over three hundred questions in the Gospels, and so. We should never be afraid to answer questions that people have. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Johnston, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for the book. And uh, I hope uh, many of our listeners will pick it up and take some time to read. Thank you, Georgine. God bless you. Again, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston, author of Unimaginable, What Our World Would Be Like Without Christianity. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Inauguration Day here on the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice. He's given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Well, today, President Trump, on this 20th day of January 2021, he left Washington for Florida. And that was hours before President-elect Joe Biden was sworn in. The president and first lady Melania Trump exited the White House at approximately 8 a.m. They were headed to Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort in Palm Beach. Well, during a stop at Joint Base Andrews in Maryland, where Trump transferred from Marine One to Air Force One, the president told a crowd of supporters, we love you. We will be back in some form, which raised a lot of questions among his hearers and observers. Well, the president will be the first sitting president since Andrew Johnson Uh, To skip all inaugural ceremonies for his successor, President Woodrow Wilson, he skipped the public ceremony for his successor, but he did accompany his successor, Warren Harding, to the Capitol. So there's nothing new, apparently, under the sun. Well, Biden's pared down inauguration is going to and did feature fewer guests. It was, uh, was of course, due to COVID-19. So the expectations uh, were adjusted to the times that we're in. Well, Joe Biden was sworn in as the 46th president of the United States today, bringing Donald Trump's term to a close. Chief Justice um, John Roberts, he performed the swearing-in ceremony. Justice Sonia Sotomayor conducted Kamala Harris uh, as as, uh, vice president. And Trump didn't attend the inauguration at all, so he wasn't a part of that equation. He flew, as I mentioned, to Florida. The inauguration took place on the steps of the Capitol, where two weeks previously a mob incited by Uh, Words by Donald Trump, it's being insisted force lawmakers to briefly evacuate the building. Dozens of police officers were injured in the rioting, including Brian Sicknick, who later died. Another Capitol officer, Eugene Goodman, was honored at the inauguration after video appeared in which he used himself as a decoy to draw rioters away from the open door to the Senate chamber. Well, Biden said in his speech at the ceremony that we've learned again that democracy is precious, it's fragile, and at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. Now, I'm hoping, if not later this week, next week, we're going to address this reference to the United States um, of America, the republic, um, as a democracy, which the founders, of course, did not support. But Biden also planned Uh, to issue a blitz of 17 executive orders that was immediately following the inauguration. We'll uh, try to tell you what some of those were earlier in the day. And the orders included a mask mandate on federal property, a halt to construction of the wall on the U.S.-Mexico border, although there will not be any demolition of the existing wall, and the rescinding of immigration and travel restrictions from several Muslim-majority countries. Now, you might recall the reason those countries were put on that list was the Leadership in those countries were unwilling to participate and cooperate with the United States requirements for clearing its residents. So that will be reversed, among other things. And again, we'll talk about that a bit later as well. Well, Biden at 78 became the oldest president in American history. 
President Donald Trump previously held that record as the oldest. But at Biden at 78, I think um, President Trump at 74 became the oldest president in the nation's history when he was sworn in as commander in chief earlier in the day. Well, prior to Trump's inauguration, former President uh, Ronald Reagan, who left the White House in 1989, he was 77 and 349 days year old, I should say. (laughs) Um, He was the oldest person to serve as president. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris at 56 is more than 20 years younger than the president. It really is a testament to the resiliency and the physical and mental strength uh, in the 21st century that someone of the advanced ages of some of the men that I've mentioned who've served as president have been able to do so. There were questions raised during the campaign as to whether or not Joe Biden would have the stamina and the mental capacity to lead. That will all be played out over the next um, four years. Well, Kamala Harris, she cemented her place in history today. She became the first woman and the first woman of color, uh, the first woman of color, not the first individual of color, to be sworn in as vice president of the United States. As I mentioned, she's 56. She's the daughter of immigrants from India and Jamaica, She brings with her a litany of firsts. She's the first woman vice president, the first black vice president, the first South Asian vice president. She was sworn in by Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Another history, uh, historic female first is the first um, Supreme Court justice of Latin descent. I'm here today because of the women who came before me, the former California senator tweeted on Wednesday before the inauguration. She chose to be sworn in using two Bibles, one previously belonging to Regina Shelton, whom she says, uh, I should say, described as a mother-like figure to herself and her sister Maya, and the second belonging to the late civil rights icon and Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, whom Harris had previously credited with inspiring her career. She was a former San Francisco district attorney. She rose to national prominence when she was elected as the first black woman to serve as California's attorney general in 2010. She held that position until 2016 when she was elected to the Senate. She is one of only two black women to have served as U.S. senator. She attended uh, Howard University, historically black university in Washington, D.C., where she joined Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, the first historically black sorority. So lots of firsts for uh, for her today. Well, as I mentioned, the uh, the president is seeking to reverse several Trump policies in the first days in office. He spoke during his inauguration speech a great deal about unity and some question whether or not his first 17 executive actions, if that reflects a desire for unity, and whether or not he'll weigh in on the impeachment trial in the Senate, should there be one. And there are some constitutional questions as to whether or not that's even possible. Uh, If this reflects the agenda that the president referenced during his um, inauguration address, well, he wants to reverse several of Trump's policies in the first days in office. Uh, The special restored report all star panel uh, made reference to each of these. And uh, among them are the uh, is the executive desire to end the wall. Biden is going to declare an immediate termination of funding for the border wall. Construction, putting an end to a key Trump campaign and administration uh, promise to build a wall, which we all followed with um, great interest and very closely. He's also going to sign an executive order revoking Trump's previous order that directed aggressive immigration enforcement. The team said that the uh, the move will allow for the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies to set civil immigration enforcement policies that best protect the American people and that are in line with our value and priorities. Meanwhile, a rather large 
um, caravan is making its way to the United States in response to statements made by uh, the president. And we'll see how that plays out over the next few weeks and months. The Biden administration is going to have a very different approach to regional migration. That's a quote from Jake Sullivan, incoming White House national security advisor. He added that Biden was committed to rebuilding the nation's asylum system. Well, Biden is also, um, he signed uh, Preserve and Fortify. It's the Obama-era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program, that allows people who came to the United States as children to request deferred immigration enforcement and work authorization for a renewal period of two years. Well, the Trump administration had sought to end that program since September of 2017, mounting a number of federal legal battles unsuccessfully. Well, next, he set to um, and did, I should say, the president signed an executive order that will put an end to Trump's Muslim ban, which Sullivan said was rooted in religious animus and xenophobia. Well, actually, it was rooted in an unwillingness on the part of Sudan, Syria, Libya, Somalia, Yemen and Iran to work within the system the United States uh, had developed to help to hold individuals attempting to enter the country with some accountability. Well, Trump in 2017 signed that executive order suspending entry into the U.S. Uh, US rather for individuals from these mostly Muslim but not exclusively Muslim countries. The travel ban was updated later in the year to include North Korea and Venezuela. The Trump administration expanded the ban again in January of 2020 to include an additional six countries, again, based on their level of cooperation or refusal to do just that. The administration's reversal will uh, repeal Trump's order to instruct the State Department to restart visa processing for affected countries in an effort to restore fairness and remedy the harms caused by the ban, end quote. Well, Sullivan also said Biden's actions would strengthen screening and vetting for travelers by enhanced information sharing with foreign governments, while also directing a a further review of other Trump administration extreme vetting practices. Now, whether or not that will provide sufficient national security um, will remain a question to be followed. Well, as for the census, Biden is going to sign and did sign an executive order today to revoke the Trump administration's plan to exclude non-citizens from the census and apportionment of congressional representatives. Uh, The move will ensure the Census Bureau has time to complete an accurate population count for each state, which uh, he will uh, then present to Congress. We'll tell you more of what's on the uh, the lineup for for President Trump. Excuse me, I have to get used to all of this for President Biden. When we come back from the break, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, today was certainly a momentous occasion in which the um, country had its uh, inauguration of the next president of the United States, Joe Biden. However you cast your ballot, whatever you thought of the outcome, Joe Biden is now president of the United States. And he chose among his first actions as president of the United States to sign 17 executive actions and orders to reverse Trump policies, making his mark early on. Well, continuing to take a look at some of the uh, the action items, he is taking action on uh, re-engaging with the World Health Organization after the Trump administration withdrew in 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic and misinformation there. The Biden administration is going to work with the World Health Organization. And you might recall Trump withdrew funding as well. And our partners, uh, the Biden administration is saying to strengthen and reform the organization, support the COVID-19 health and humanitarian response, and advance global health and security. The team, the Biden team, said Dr. Anthony Fauci would lead the Biden administration 
nation's delegation at the WHO executive board meeting this week. So apparently his credibility has been restored. And the president is expected to restore the White House's National Security Council's pandemic unit, which Trump disbanded early in his administration. Well, meanwhile, the United States is headed back to Paris. Biden will sign the instrument to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord after the Trump administration officially left that agreement last year. The agreement was a global pact creating, uh, created rather during the Obama administration to combat climate change. Biden's national climate advisor, Gina McCarthy, said the move will be an important step for the U.S. to regain and strengthen its leadership opportunities. Under the previous administration, there were not sufficient benefits to the United States and uh, excessive deficits. It was not in the U.S. best interest, but we have a new administration. Next, Biden uh, signed an executive order that will roll back Trump's environmental actions, including the revocation of Trump presidential proclamations and other actions signed that uh, McCarthy claims don't serve the United States national interest. The move is also uh, uh, going to revoke the presidential permit granted by the uh, Keystone XL pipeline, a promise made by Biden during the campaign, McCarthy said. And of course, that has Canada scrambling. Their expectations have now just been dramatically altered. He's going to sign a broad executive order that takes steps that will uh, uh, be imperative to address our climate uh, crisis, she says, with the, uh, which will create good union jobs and advance environmental justice. With regard to the coronavirus pandemic, uh, the president on Wednesday will launch the 100-day masking challenge and sign an executive order requiring masks and physical distancing in all federal buildings, on all federal land, and by federal employees and contractors. Uh, the president also extended the eviction and foreclosure moratoriums for those affected by the unprecedented housing affordability crisis. Sadly, that does not uh, extend to those um, who own those properties, many of whom are struggling as well. The director of the National Economic Council, Brian D, said the emergency measures are important. Uh, Biden is also expected to ask the Department of Education to consider immediately extending the pause on interest and principal payments of the federal student loans until the 30th of September. Deese added that Biden supports Congress acting immediately to cancel $10,000 rather in student loan debt per person. Uh, these are emergency measures that will help make sure no American is put in the place to make the decision to pay their student loans or put food on the table. Meanwhile, uh, White House domestic policy advisor Susan Rice said that Biden on Wednesday will put racial justice and equality at the center of the agenda and will build a whole um, a whole of government approach to racial justice. Not altogether clear what that will look like at this point. Biden will sign an executive order to define equality or rather equity as the consistent and systematic, fair, just and impartial treatment of all individuals, including those who belong to underserved communities such as black, Latino, indigenous and Native American persons, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders and other persons of color, LGBTQ plus persons, people with disabilities, religious minorities, persons who live in rural areas and persons otherwise affected by persistent poverty and inequality, end quote. Rice said Biden will direct federal agencies to review the state of equity within their agencies, work with the Office of Management and Budget to equitably allocate federal resources. Well, the president also signed an executive order that prohibits against uh, workplace discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity and is directing agencies to take all lawful steps to make sure that federal anti-discrimination statutes prohibit discrimination on the basis 
of sexual orientation, gender identity, and protecting the rights of LGBTQ plus individuals. Other actions the president took today include signing a memo to extend the deferred enforcement departure, rather department, uh, designation for other actions that the president's uh, taking on Wednesday include signing a memo to extend the deferred enforcement departure designation uh, for Liberians who have been in the U.S. for many years to June of 2022. Biden will also sign an executive order or to restore and maintain public trust and government and order every appointee in the executive branch um, to sign a broad executive order that takes steps that are imperative to address our crisis of trust all across the board. This is, again, a not altogether unusual step, but is designed to at least give the appearance of holding individuals who hold office and positions of authority to a higher standard. It's essentially an ethics pledge, which will ensure that employees act in the interest of the American people and not for personal gain. Now, these ethics pledges are only useful, however, if they're enforced, and that will be the challenge for the administration. The president also issued a memo Wednesday withdrawing the Trump administration's regulatory process in an effort to remove those needless obstacles to regulating in the public's interest. And incoming White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain who also issued a regulatory freeze memo on Wednesday, will pause any new regulations from moving forward and give Biden, uh, the president and the administration, a chance to review any regulations that the Trump administration tried to finalize in its last days. Uh, Jen Psaki said that uh, in the, uh, the coming days and weeks, Biden will be announcing additional executive actions that confront these challenges and deliver on the president-elect's, uh, well, now president's promises to the American people. The Mexico City policy that forbids the use of taxpayer dollars to fund abortions in foreign countries is certainly on that list. Taxpayer funding of abortion is very likely in our future. Well, there's so much more that could be said about all of this, but I did want to just mention Uh, One other thing before uh, this segment draws to a close. We've now seen the 46th president of the United States inaugurated. What do we do as followers? Some of us supported uh, Joe Biden, hoping that he would turn the country around. Some of us did not support Joe Biden, convinced that the the, uh, country is going to decline in ways that cannot be restored. So what is the appropriate response from a biblical perspective at a time of great um, challenge. Well, I appreciated what Anne Graham Lotz suggested that we do. She offered a prayer for our nation. She said this, on this day, January 20th, 2021, we acknowledge that yours, referring not to Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any elected or political figure, but to the God of the universe, that yours is the glory and the power. Did that change today at around, what was it, noon, when the oath of office was taken? Did God, did his position shift in some way? Did his power diminish? Is his glory somehow um, altered by the events that took place in Washington earlier today? She goes on to say, there are times in prayer when I seem at a loss for words. This is one of those times. With all of the turmoil, confusion, anger, fear, division, and upheaval, as we transition to a new administration with COVID keeping us confined and separated from each other, I I know I need to pray, but how? And so I have turned to the familiar prayers that Jesus taught us to pray, putting it into her own words, our Father. 
You are seated on heaven's throne in glory, majesty, and supreme authority. You are in charge. You don't make mistakes. You have promised that you will be with us even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You use hard times to get us to look up. So we look up now. We turn to you. Thank you for your promise that when we come to to you through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, you will hear our prayer because we are your children. We reverence your name, Yahweh, Yeshua, Jesus. You have declared that at the sound of your name, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are the Lord. You have revealed that your name is above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. You have been our help in ages past. You are our hope for years to come. You are the God of our founding fathers. You are our God in whom we as a nation have put our trust. Now, this is a partial prayer, but it is one that puts into eternal perspective the challenges we face today as a nation seriously fractured and divided. And the choice is that not just one political party or the other, one denomination or the other, one end of the political continuum or the other has to uh, has to face. But it's the challenge that each of us as individuals must confront. How will I respond to our current situation? Will I gloat if my side won? How will I respond? If my side lost, will I declare that all is lost or will I look up? Will I look to him and find my hope? We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest and her co-author asked the question of those who serve in children's ministry. Are you a children's ministry leader on the edge of burnout? Now, I've done it for many, many years, and I know that feeling. They also asked, do you find yourself working harder and harder to tame the chaos? Mark DeVries and my guest, Annette Safstrom, they know how you feel. The flash and the fizz can be effective at attracting young families, but without sustainable systems beneath the unforgettable moments, the impact is almost always short-lived. Well, they've written a book, Sustainable Children's Ministry, From Last-Minute Scrambling to Long-Term Solutions, and in it, they provide a practical resource. You'll learn how to recruit volunteers, and isn't that always an issue? Partner with parents, navigate politics in the church, and care for your own soul instead of frenetically uh, scrambling to do it all yourself. Sustainable Children's Ministry will help you build a ministry foundation that will still be standing long after you have gone. Well, my guest is Annette Safstrom. She is a senior consultant, speaker, and trainer with Ministry Architects, and she served in children's ministry for over 30 years. She was recently director of a rapidly growing children's ministry in Texas, and she's spoken at the Children's Pastors Conference and Group's uh, Kidmen Conference as well. She joins us today to talk about the book she co-authored, along with Mark DeVries, who is the founder of Ministry Architects, to talk about sustainable children's ministry and explain what that means. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. You begin uh, in the introduction to tell a little bit of your story, how you began in children's ministry, which was so similar to to my own story. I'm not involved in children's ministry today, but I started out as a kid myself in ministry. Mm -hmm. Tell our listeners a little of your story. Sure. Um, when I was um, eight or nine years old, uh, my parents wanted to go visit this new church, and I remember them telling me, and that it's going to be fun. They have this thing called Children's Church. It's not going to be boring. It's going to be super fun and super exciting and like a party for Jesus. And so as a little kid, I was so excited. I thought, oh, that'll be fun. That'll be great. Not like the church that I was used to. And so um, that's what happened. And 
just fell in love with Jesus, fell in love with going to church, fell in love with learning the Bible as a little kid and learned that I could experience God for myself as a small child. And I didn't need someone else to be there to do it for me, but I learned to experience the Lord for myself. Your Sunday school teacher approached you when I think you were about nine or 10, maybe 11, and asked you to help to come alongside and be involved in children's ministry as a, I'm not sure how you would describe yourself, but you were involved in the leadership side of children's ministry. Right. When I was about 11 years old and I was aging out of the children's ministry, my children's pastor, Miss Jenny, came up to me and she said, Annette, I think you can do this. And she handed me a piece of paper and I looked at it. It was a lesson, a Sunday school lesson. And I thought, oh, what do you mean? She said, I think you can teach kids. She said, I want you to go home and I want you to read over this and I want you to come back next week and you get to lead the kindergartners. And I thought, wow, what... I think about it now, who, who trusts an 11-year-old to do that? You know, 11-year-olds are, you know, lacking impulse control and have all kinds of ideas and creativity that may not fit into that scenario. But she, she said she saw something in me and, and she wanted to teach me how to do it. And so from then, I had always been with kids. And I would meet with Miss Jenny every week, even into grad school. And we would talk about children's ministry and how to minister to kids and how to work with volunteers and how to work with parents. And she really did take the time and invest in me and teach me everything that she was doing. Mm. Now that developed a love of children's ministry for you. And when you went on to school, um, that was the focus of your, your studies. When you um, had your first job, uh, which you write about in the, in the book, uh, it wasn't as successful as you had hoped. And you ran into some of the challenges that many who are involved in children's ministry uh, face, but you, um, unlike many, were not discouraged to the point that you walked away and never came back. Talk about those, that early experience as an adult overseeing children's ministry and what brought you to thinking more deeply about how to sustain uh, children's ministry. Sure. Um, I was um, fresh out of grad school. I had been married a month and I was a part of this very large church and they hired me to be over all of the elementary stuff at this church. And so I came in with lots of different schooling, lots of different training. I was ready to go. I was so excited. Like this was the thing that I was made to do and I was ready to go for it. And I walked in and I expected that this big church would have all these systems for how things should work. And I could turn my creativity right into their systems and we were going to make this thing sing. And I walked in and a couple of weeks in, I realized that this was not going to work, that this, that I was failing miserably. I, I couldn't keep up with anything. I didn't know what was next. I didn't know what was on my task list. And so you've been in children's ministry and you know there's so many moving parts to mm-hmm. children's ministry. It's not a desk job. It's not a classroom job. It's all of that and so much more. And I was, with all my schooling and all my training, I was still completely unprepared to walk into this ministry. And um, I found myself on my supervisor's couch at least once a week having a conversation about why I didn't get something done or why this class was failing or why this thing wasn't working. And it was devastating to me because here I thought this was what the Lord had called me to do. And um, I found myself at one point on probation. And here I was, I thought I was going to be this rock star. And now my job is threatened because I can't keep it together and I can't keep all the pieces moving in the way that they should be. And, um, you know, there were lots of things happening and, and because there were no systems, there was toxicity in the environment and there were just things, unhealthy things happening all around. And I just found myself thinking in that. And, um, after about two and a half years, 
of that, I had to, I stepped back and just found a more administrative job in the church and found some time just to relax and heal and think about, you know, what it is that was missing. And so um, I ended up um, coming home to have my babies. And then a couple years in that same church planted a campus right near my house. And I got a call um, asking me to take over the children's ministry. And I said, no, because that's hard. And I don't want to do that. Now I have two babies. I don't, I don't want to do that. It's really hard work. And I got off the phone and I talked to my husband and he said, Annette, you need to think about that and you need to pray about that because I think the Lord's calling you to do that. And I had tears in my eyes and I went back and I prayed about it and I, I said, okay, I'll do it. And um, I went and I had my quote interview meeting at the church and it, it lasted almost five hours because I came in a little overprepared. Um, <laughs> here are the things that I want to do. Here are the things that I won't do. Here are my boundaries. Here's, here are how the systems are going to work here. And so this time I came in with systems and came in with a mission that we want to build a ministry where the volunteers are still here in 20 years and they love what they're doing because they're not burned out. They know where they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to do how they're supposed to lead, and what's going to happen while they're there. And they're going to know when they're hitting the mark and when they win. And after all of that, um, I came in to this brand-new campus. Um, I think we started with about 200 people, which is great. After Easter, we had 800 people, and they stayed. And so here I was thinking I had all these systems, and they were going to be great, and they were, but they weren't enough. And so – Um, the Lord brought me some great help and we worked really hard to get these systems in place and make sure everybody was trained. Everybody had been communicated with, everyone had all their materials and things like that. But it took, it took several months to get all of that in place. One of the things you write in the book is that, um, the fact that you had to experience some setbacks, uh, this book can help equip others who are working in children's ministry so they don't have to repeat the same mistakes. Talk about what's so different about sustainable children's ministry, what it is and how it differs from, uh, what you had done before. Um, sustainable children's ministry doesn't mean that we're not going to have urgent tasks, but it means that we've got a system for how we handle each aspect of ministry. And in the book, we list out what kinds of systems you need to have. Um, Because if we don't have a system, everything is urgent. Like my DVD player in the threes class wasn't working. And I didn't know that for three weeks. So all of my volunteers were frustrated and thought I didn't care, but Mm. I didn't know. So we had to come up with a system. So how do I know what equipment's working and what's not? It's simple and it's boring and it's foundational, but when we don't do those things, I need to know if, if that lesson was a flop, I need to know how do I get feedback from my volunteers? Because what's going to happen is next year, I might try to use that lesson again. And those volunteers are going to walk in and roll in their eyes like, we tried this and it didn't work. I don't know why we're not doing it again. And so having a feedback system is just a good example for how we find out what's working and what's not can keep us from having those issues with people. And can he keep us from having those issues in the classroom? It affects kids, it affects parents, it affects volunteers, and it really affects the whole church. Now we're going to take a quick break, but we're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book, Sustainable Children's Ministry, from last-minute scrambling, and we've all done that if we've been involved in children's ministry, to long-term solutions. And fewer of us have experienced the benefit of these kinds of uh, solutions. Again, Sustainable Children's Ministry, my guest is Annette Safstrom. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and my guest is Annette Safstrom. She's the co-author of Sustainable Children's Ministry, From Last-Minute Scrambling to Long-Term Solutions. She's a senior consultant, speaker, and trainer with Ministry Architects, and she served in children's ministry for over 30 years, including as director of a, a rapidly growing children's ministry in Texas. She speaks at a variety of children's ministry events, including the Children's Pastors Conference and Group's Kid Men Conference. After leaving Bible College, with a certification in children's ministry. She earned her bachelor's in psychology from Texas A&M and a master's in research psychology from Southern Methodist University. Uh, She and her uh, family... Uh, live in, and I don't see that here, so I'll just leave that alone. <laughs> anyway, she's here to talk with us about the book she co-authored with uh, Mark DeVries. Well, let's start at where uh, we should start. If we're interested in sustainable children's ministry at our church, where do you begin? Um, you really want to begin with um, taking a look at what your pressure points are, because they're going to tell you what systems you need to put into place right away. Um, typically, when we work with a church at ministry architects, it takes almost two years to implement all of those systems and get them humming. But when you say, okay, I'm feeling, I'm really feeling pressure around volunteers, then let's look at that first. Um, or I'm really feeling pressure around events. Nobody's coming to my events, which is probably a communication issue. Um, so where are you feeling the pressure and start with that? Okay. I, I don't, my volunteers are not doing what they're supposed to do. It sounds like volunteer training is something that we need to look at. Do we have a rhythm for our volunteer training? Why is no one coming to our training meetings or is there another way to train volunteers that we haven't thought of yet? Is there a way to train them without coming to a meeting? So, um, wherever you're feeling the pressure, that's where you should start. And then beyond that, if you look in the book, there's just a list of different kinds of systems mm-hmm. that you want to have in place. Um, communication, recruiting, training, evaluating curriculum, um, facilities, things, things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, oftentimes when you uh, hear about or think about systems in children's ministry, you think about a large church with lots of resources, lots of potential volunteers. Mm-hmm. Does sustainable children's ministry, is it, uh, f- is it usable in a smaller church setting as well, where you have, a f- you have fewer uh, families, fewer children, uh, and the possibility of fewer volunteers? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you said that because I think there is a misunderstanding Mm -hmm. that if you're a small church, first of all, people think if you're a small church, you don't need those systems because I don't need a directory because I know everyone or I don't need a check-in system because I know everybody. But what happens when that visitor comes and they stand behind someone to pick up their kid and they see you, no check, no nothing, no name tag, anything, just give the kid to someone. They don't know that you know them. And so that visitor sees oh, they're just going to give my kid to anybody. I don't know what, you know, I don't know that my kid is safe. Things like that, there are very simple ways. You don't need a giant database, but an Excel spreadsheet is a great way to keep track of your volunteers, their birthdays, your kids and their parents and their allergies. Just a, There are simple systems that even a small church can use and will save you lots of time. Mm. Well, let's talk about volunteers, because I can remember so often uh, in Sunday school, the subject comes up, we need volunteers for children's ministry. And the assumption is, okay, every parent 
um, they have an obligation, even if they don't have much interest and everyone else rolls their eyes. And it it becomes this moment where you can hear a pin drop. Uh, You've described some of the things that not only attract, but retain volunteers. Talk a, a little bit about the challenge of finding people who will work in children's ministry and then having systems that motivate them and and give them the desire to be there uh, years from uh, from the start date. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of times the problem is in the way we ask, because as a children's ministry leader, we feel like we're asking for help just for ourselves. And I think once we've got to change that perspective and the way that we ask, um, when we say, oh, please, would you just help this one time? I, I'm not going to be able to make it this weekend if you don't show up. Nobody wants to be part of that because it sounds like you're jumping on a sinking ship and it sounds like it's not going to be fun. And, you know, you're just going to endure for an hour and hopefully survive and never be asked again. (laughs) But we know if you say yes one time, you're going to get asked again and again and again. Um, And so volunteers feel like they're not accomplishing anything, especially if they're thrown in at the last minute or they're not given good direction. Um, And one of the biggest things is we don't tell them how they're how to be successful we don't tell them how we're measuring success and so if as the leader i'm measuring success by um every kid can can say what they learned when they leave then that's what i need to tell my leaders okay if every kid needs to be able to recite the main point back to you or if success is kids leave with smiles on their faces and they want to come back next week i need to be telling my volunteers that's what success is otherwise our volunteers are coming in they're doing the best they can, and they really want to do a good job, but they don't know how they win, so they're constantly frustrated because they don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have a um, chapter. Oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. You have a chapter titled Children's Ministry is Family Ministry and a Recipe for Turning Parents into Partners. Uh, for many parents, it's a relief to have someplace to send the kids during the Sunday morning service. Uh, others want to be uh, very much involved. Talk about that recipe for turning parents into partners, whatever that might look like for any given family. You know, I think it is different for everyone, but mm-hmm. I think it, it all comes down to relationship. Not every parent needs to be a volunteer in your ministry. Not every parent is wired to be with kids. There are lots of ways to help out in kids' ministry without being in a classroom as well. And so as much as we can communicate with parents, what's happening in the classroom. And that doesn't have to be a belabored thing. Um, I've talked to lots of children's ministers and and encouraged them to give your parents a calendar. Let them know, hey, if you're only coming once a month, you're only getting this. If you miss this week, this is what you're missing. You know, send out an email and say, here's what we're doing this weekend. So that when parents wake up on Sunday morning and they think, oh, I'd really just like to drink my coffee and hang out at the house today, they remember, oh, this is what my kid is missing instead of we got to get dressed, we got to get to church, we got to do all this. Engaging parents in what's happening and then um, giving, offering them some shared experiences outside of Sunday school. I have seen the most success in people experiencing God as a family, and that gives them something to talk about. Just like when we go on vacation with our family, we come home and we talk about, oh, this happened and this happened, and we all experienced this together, and that's a big bonding thing for families. It's the same with our faith. Let's experience something together. Let's go, let's go on a prayer walk together. Let's experience worship together as a family sometime. Then we have something to talk about, and it's more than a parent saying, what did you learn this week? 
Mm-hmm. And the kid saying, oh, I don't know. And everybody being frustrated and thinking the children's minister is not doing their job. In some churches, the children's ministry uh, coordinator, leader, volunteers feel like perhaps they're on the low rung of the ladder. <clears throat> you have a chapter titled Beyond the Victim, Swimming in the Deep Waters of Church Politics, which can be something of a challenge. Give us some encouragement and insight. I, it is such a common place for children's ministry people to be. And I have to go back a little bit to the personality type of children's ministry people. And I'm stereotyping and I'm generalizing but I will say that probably 90% of the children's ministry people I've worked with kind of fall into that. I'm going to take on everything myself and I'm going to get it done myself kind of mode. And they're not the Pied Piper type that we see in youth ministry that wants to be front and center. Most children's ministry leaders want to get it done and want to do a good job. And so that leads to feeling like they're not seen and feeling like their cause is not validated among the rest of church staff. And Um, I found myself in that place and I found myself, I remember sitting at my desk and thinking, nobody knows, nobody knows what I'm doing. Nobody knows how hard this is. All these people are working around this big church. They got all their things going on and they don't know how the, how the struggle feels in children's ministry and how hard we're working. And it just, it came to me like, who do I know? Who do I have relationship with outside of the children's ministry? I was so buried in the tasks that I, I wasn't putting forth an effort to let anybody know who I was, what our mission was, what we were doing. And so I started, I started making friends in the rest of the church staff. And I just started being myself and investing in relationships. And what happened from that was I grew into become what I would call a champion for the ministry. And I would talk about what was happening and what we were doing and what our successes were and what our challenges were. And then when I would get in a staff meeting and I would need something people would be ready to help. Mm. But when I stayed in my little office and worried about my little thing and nobody else, there was really nothing I could do. And so I would encourage people to get out of your office, make some friends, get to know people and let them get to know you, hear what their struggles are and see what we can do together. Well, the book is titled Sustainable Children's Ministry from Last Minute Scrambling to Long-Term Solutions. Great resource for those who are are laboring in the ministry. And I especially appreciated the dedication uh, to the book. And one of the things you say is you can't even imagine the reward for those who minister to children on a regular basis in a, in a congregation. It's such uh, tremendous work. Annette Safstrom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it very much. And again, Annette is the co-author with Mark DeVries, the book Sustainable Children's Ministry. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.